Hello again and welcome to another episode of the Ominous Origins Podcast with me, Casey. Of course, this episode is still brought to you by the wonderful people over at MorbidlyBeautiful.com. Morbidly Beautiful is your one-stop shop for all things horror content related, from interviews, reviews, top 10 lists, and everything in between. First off, I'd like to apologize for missing last week's episode. I had it all recorded, and then I listened back, and there was some weird shit going on with my recording. I don't know what happened. It was very hissy, very hummy. I think my computer had a little bit of a shit fit, so I scrapped it. And by the time I figured out what the issue was, it was a little bit too late, and I just figured I'd wait until this week to get it up. So with that out of the way, I do want to share one thing, one little funny anecdote from my week this week, and it has to do with my work and reviews. Hint, hint, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. So I work in a kitchen. I'm a dish bitch, so I don't actually make any food, but one of the chefs came up to me today and said, hey, look at this review somebody left on our website. I was like, okay. So he takes a screenshot and shows me, and it says, whoever made those chicken wings yesterday deserves to have their ass eaten. And I think that is one of the funniest reviews I've ever heard. So if you have any reviews like that you want to leave me, you know where to do it. Apple iTunes podcast, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, for the last time. Anyway, on to today's episode. We're going to go back to some true crime after doing some interviews the last few episodes. And like any good true crime case, we're going to go all the way back in time to 1945 and visit the mysterious murder of one Charles Walton. This is a weird one. It's mysterious. It has a bunch of witchcrafty elements to it if you want to look at it that way. But let's just dive right into it. This is Charles Walton. Ominous. Ominous. It is an adjective. Sounds like someone breathing. Ominous. Charles Walton was an Englishman who was 74 years old at the time of his untimely death. He was born on May 12, 1870, yeah, that's a long time ago, to Charles and Emma Walton. He was an agricultural worker, and he lived in Lower Quinton all his life, which is a countryside in England. He was a widower who shared a small cottage in Lower Quinton with his 33-year-old niece, Edith Elizabeth Walton, whom he adopted 30 years previous upon the death of her mother. Now, it is believed, if you, you know, go by some reports, that Walton was described as somewhat of a loner and earned a reputation as a trainer of horses in his youth. Some believe that he did not socialize with his neighbors, but that he wasn't generally disliked. He was just kind of a keep-to-yourself kind of guy, which I totally get. I've lived in the same apartment building for six years now, give or take. And I couldn't tell you my neighbor's name. Not a clue. I don't know anybody in this building. So that's... I get where he's coming from with that. Walton did walk with a stick because he had arthritic joints. Another thing I can kind of get behind. However, he did find casual farm work whenever he could. And for the previous nine months, he had been working for a local farmer named Alfred Potter, whose farm was known as the Furs. Cool name. Do people still name farms? I wonder... Interesting. I know I see some every once in a while driving through the countryside here in Canada, but I think those are like businesses, like legit, like horseback riding camps or shit like that. I don't think anybody just names their farms anymore. I could be wrong. Anybody with a farm, let me know. Now, Edith, his niece, had lived with Charles since she was three years old and was basically a father for her, even though her actual father was still alive. Walton had lived in the same place since World War I, and his wife had died on December 9th, 
1927. And that's basically all the backstory you need to know about old Charles here. Now, the day of the murder in question happened to be on February 14th, yes, Valentine's Day in 1945. It's reported that Walton was working that day and he had left home with a pitchfork and a slash hook, which is kind of what you see, I guess, arborists use to trim bushes. It's kind of crescent moon shaped, but not quite a C, and it's kind of serrated on one side, sharp on the other. It's just a big ol' handy hacking knife. Edith, his niece, stated that Walton had left his purse at home on February 14th as well. He was also witnessed to have passed through the churchyard between 9am and 9.30am. On this particular day, he was slashing hedges in a field known as Hill Ground on the slopes of Meon Hill, hence the slash hook. Also on that day, Edith was working as a printer's assembler at the Royal Society of Arts, which had relocated to Lower Quinton during the war. Walton was expected to be home by around 4pm. Edith returned home around 6 and found that Walton was not home. Now due to his reported nature of being kind of a loner, there was no real hope that he was out on the town or at a local pub or even visiting a friend because he probably didn't have any. So naturally, Edith went to her neighbor, an agricultural worker by the name of Harry Beasley, who lived just down the street from them. Together they made their way to the firs to alert Alfred Potter. Potter claimed to have seen Charles last earlier that day, slashing hedges in the hill ground as he was supposed to be doing. The three of them set out in that direction where Charles was last seen, and they eventually found his body. Now the scene in question was gruesome if you go by the accounts. The reports of the people on site said happened. They'd said that the murderer had beaten Walton over the head with his own stick and cut his neck open with the slash hook. Finally, they had driven the prongs of the pitchfork into either side of his neck, pinning him to the ground like something out of a fucking horror movie. The handle of the pitchfork had been wedged under a cross member of the hedge, and the slash hook had been buried deep into his neck. Naturally, Edith was overcome with grief and began to scream really, really loud. Beasley tried to pacify her and usher her away from the scene so she couldn't see who was basically her father. Hacked to bits. Ugh. It's not a sight anybody wants to see. However, it was at that moment that Harry Peachy was walking along the other side of the hedge. Very coincidental timing, if you ask me. Potter did call to him, directed his attention to the body, and told Peachy to go alert the police. Good call. It was up to Potter to guard the body while the police arrived. Beasley took Edith back down the hill, and the first policeman on the scene was PC Michael James Lomancy, who arrived at around 7.05pm, roughly an hour or so after they found the body. Members of the Stratford-upon-Avon CID arrived later in the evening, while Professor James Emma Webster of the West Midlands Forensic Laboratory arrived at 11.30pm. The body was eventually removed at 1.30am. So what happens after you find a body in a field? Well, even back in 1945, you started an investigation. And that started around 11pm on February 14th, Valentine's Day, with Detective Inspector Tomes taking a statement from Alfred Potter. He eventually took over the case as well. Potter stated that he had been at the farm for about five years and he had known Walton that entire time. He had employed Walton casually for the last nine months and said that Walton had worked on the farm when weather permitted. Walton had been trimming the hedges for the past few months and Hillground was his last field that needed to be done. Potter stated that he had been at the College Arms with Joseph Stanley, a farmer of the White Cross Farm, yet another name, until noon that day. 
He had gone straight across to a small field adjoining hill ground and saw Walton working about five or 600 yards away. He said that he noticed Walton had about six to 10 yards of hedge left to cut. When he found the body later that day, about four additional yards of the hedge had been cut, which would have been about half an hour's work. So in other words, he saw this man approximately 30 minutes before he was brutally murdered. Hmm, not suspicious at all. Potter stated that he knew that it was Walton's habit to stop for lunch around 11 a.m. and that he would continuously work until about 4. He described Walton as an inoffensive type of man but one who would speak his mind if necessary. The decision to request assistance from the Metropolitan Police or the Scotland Yard, whatever you want to call it, was made at an early stage. The Deputy Chief Constable of Warwickshire sent a message on 15th of February which stated, quote, The Chief Constable has asked me, to get the assistance of Scotland Yard to assist in a brutal case of murder that took place yesterday. The deceased is a man named Charles Walton, age 75, and he was killed with an instrument known as a slash hook. The murder was either committed by a madman or one of the Italian prisoners who are in camp nearby. The assistance of an Italian interpreter would be necessary, I think. Dr. Webster states deceased was killed between 1 and 2 p.m. yesterday. A metal watch is missing from the body. It is being circulated." End quote. The details of the watch were given. It was a gent's plain metal pocket watch with a snap case at the back, white enamel face with Edgar Jones Stafford on Avon thereon. Secondhand English numerals valid at 25 slash minus about 10 years ago. I don't really know what that means. I assume that's the price or the value. 25 pence is my guess on that. I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, there's a couple of interesting points there. Which, remember, this is right around the ending of World War II. It's just about to end anyway, if I have my history correct. So, having Italian prisoners makes sense. They were part of that whole shit stick that went on way back when. And to call them out is, I guess, appropriate, if not a little bit racist feeling to me. I don't really know. But that was what they thought happened way back when. Now, on February 16th, Chief Inspector Robert Fabian and his partner, Detective Sergeant Albert Webb, arrived to assist in the investigation. Later that day, Detective Sergeant Saunders of Special Branch, who was fluent in Italian, also arrived. Alfred Potter quickly became under suspicion, naturally, and PC Lomancy, the local policeman who knew Alfred and his wife, Lillian, was asked to stay close to them to see what they might unwittingly uncover or reveal. You never know what people might say when they're in the company of friends, right? Maybe a little confession here or there. I think that's called the Mr. Big technique nowadays, and it's kind of frowned upon, but still used, I think. If you're not sure what that is, that is where there's an undercover cop who goes, it's almost like entrapment, but it's not because they're not asking them to do anything illegal. They're just pretty much saying, have you done anything illegal? I want to know because I might want to hire you for this job. And then the suspect goes on and brags about what he's done and how he's done it, blah, 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 blah. And then they get arrested on confession. Back to Mr. Walton here. D.S. Saunders began interviewing the Italian World War II prisoners of war held at Long Marsden. Also, World War II is hard to say. World War. I keep twisting over that. I must have recorded that about seven times right then. Anyway, they were held at Long Marsden. Prisoners were apparently able to roam the area at will, and although there was a schedule for work days and free days, no record was really kept of these movements. On the afternoon of the day of the murder, some prisoners had gone to Stratford to see a play, while others visited the cinema. 
However, it does not appear that any of the Italians were ever seriously considered to have killed Walton. Professor Webster's postmortem on Walton found that Walton's trachea had been cut and that he had bruising to his chest and several broken ribs. Walton had also defensive wounds, a cut on his left hand and bruises on the back of his right hand and forearm. So you know the classic pose, you're on your back, you have your hands kind of covering your face. That's basically what he did to try to stay alive. Remember, he's a 75-year-old man at this time. Yeah, it's kind of sad. Webster concluded that Walton's wounds had been caused by two weapons, a stabbing weapon and a cutting weapon, presumably the pitchfork and slash hook, which makes sense. They were there at the time. And reports say they were already buried in his body. So, yeah. Walton had also been hit over the head with his own walking stick, which was found about three and a half yards from his body with bloody hair stuck to it. It was determined that Walton died between 1 and 2 p.m. And Walton's shirt had been opened, his trousers had been unbuttoned at the top, and his fly was also undone. Webster's report makes no specific mention of the cross, supposedly carved into Walton's chest, mentioned in some other accounts, which we'll get to because that's the spooky witchcraft stuff. Now, naturally, the main suspect was Alfred Potter, who was not a wizard, or related to Harry Potter in any way, shape, or form. And on February 17th, Potter was interviewed for a second time, on this occasion by Detective Sergeant Webb. Potter stated that Walton had usually worked about four days each week, but never in wet weather. Probably because of the arthritis, and if I know anything about that, eh, wet weather, rain, precipitation, anything like that sucks. Potter stated that he paid him 18 pence per hour, and usually at the end of the fortnight, although sometimes by the week. Duke gets paid 18 pence per hour. That's basically what I make. And that was 100 fucking years ago. Jesus Christ, inflation's a piece of shit. Anyway, he said that he left it to Walton to say how many hours he had completed and implied that Walton was sometimes paid for hours he had not actually worked. He had last paid Walton the fortnight ending in February 10th when he had given him £2.15. Potter stated that on the day of the murder, he had left the college arms and had gone across to a field known as Caxley's to see some sheep and to feed some calves. When he reached the field, it was about 12.20 and he saw Walton working in his short sleeve shirt. And he recalls this detail because I guess it was hot that day. And uh, he said to himself, wow, he's really working at it today. Anyway, Potter added that he would have gone over to see Walton were it not for the fact that he had a heifer in a ditch nearby that needed some attention. Them damn heifers fall into the ditches and goddamn. He went straight home and arrived there at about 1240. He then went to attend to said heifer. I love the word heifer. Jesus, man, it's such a good word. On the 20th of February, PC Lamancy was at the Furs. Remember that fun name people give farms and whatnot. And mentioned that the fact that the police were still hoping to take fingerprints from the murder weapons. At this time, Alfred Potter said that he had touched the handle of the slash hook and possibly even the pitchfork when he first came across the body, although he claimed to have already mentioned this to the police. He said that he had handled the weapon in response to a comment from Harry Beasley that, quote, you'd better have a look to make sure he's gone. That seems a little bit suspect as well. Mrs. Potter had displayed considerable annoyance at this revelation, stating that the police were bound to suspect him if his prints were on the murder weapon. Potter, meanwhile, told Lamancy that the murder was the work of a fascist from the camp. Yikes. A short time later, a serviceman came to the door and asked for Potter, who was in the yard. Lamancy recorded that when Potter came in, he said 
That soldier has just told me that the military police of the camp have got an Italian coming out with a suit of clothes and detained him and sent him to the civil police who came dashing out. They have taken him away at this time. At this, Potter affected great glee and his wife became almost hysterical with delight. Now, I don't know why I read it the way I did. I've read military and I'm like, I gotta read it like a military script. Anyway, let's just continue on. Don't mind my rambling today. It's been a week. According to Fabian's initial report, Potter stated that on the 23rd of February, that after his visit to Cax Lee, he had come home, read the paper for about five minutes, and then had gone to help one of his workers, Charles Henry Happy Bachelor, to pulp some mangolds for a few minutes. Subsequently, both men had gone to look at the church clock and saw it was 1 p.m. The account was confirmed by Mrs. Potter, who stated that Alfred Potter had been home since around 12.30 p.m., and had read the paper for a few minutes, pretty much confirming his alibi, but do we believe her? That's the question. He then asked how long dinner would be, and she replied, not long. On hearing this, Potter had gone to help Bachelor at about 12.40 and returned home at about 1.05. Bachelor also confirmed that Potter had come to help him around 12.40. On February 27th, Fabian asked that inquiries be made of a Stubbs and Bradsheet about any debts recorded against Alfred Potter or L.L. Potter & Co., farmers of Campton, Gloucestershire. Ooh, I feel like I butchered that. Subsequently, it was confirmed that there were no such debts. Fabian also asked for inquiries to be made at the Ministry of Agriculture and Fisheries about the results of a, quote, test wages investigation made on January 12th, 1945s at the Furs Farm by Inspector R.G. Elliott who was apparently reluctant to reveal information to Fabian without any authority from his headquarters. Again, in his initial crime report, Fabian recorded that at the inquest on Charles Walton on March 20th, Potter had told the coroner that he had seen someone in a short-sleeves shirt on his field at 12.30pm and that they were stationary. Ooh, and it has been 20 minutes already. Wow, time flies when you're having fun, eh? I didn't think this was going to be a two-parter, but looks like it's going to be one. There's still a bit more of information I want to go over before we get into some of the witchcraft and myths and all that sort of fun stuff. So I think that's going to do it for this week. My name is Casey and this is the Ominous Origins Podcast. If you like what you heard, please feel free to leave a rating on Spotify. Any five-star ones will get a shout-out if you let me know that you left it. Or alternatively, you can go the old-fashioned route and leave a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Again, any five-star ratings will be read out on the show. So it's a great way to get a shout-out. Follow along on social media as well on Twitter at HorrorShotsProd is in production, on Instagram at OminousOriginsPod, or even on Facebook. Yes, still on that old thing at HorrorShots. So, until next week when we wrap up what we can about Charles Walton.